I appreciate what Brother Bill was sharing with us the last few weeks, because if you notice, he brought out a, a big contrast between the church of Smyrna and the church of Laodicea. Remember? And remember the one thing he said, that both of those communities were kind of wealthy communities, but one church was poor in wealth, but they were rich spiritually, and the church in Laodicea was just the opposite. They were rich materially, but they were poor spiritually. And it's really an awesome contrast because the, the message we're going to receive from God's Word today in the uh, first epistle of John, the second chapter, is, is just the explanation of the nuts and bolts of, of how we, who can live in a rich society, just as the Church of Smyrna and the Church of Laodicea, they were both rich societies, but we can have our hearts right before God. And John goes through and he explains the nuts and bolts how that happens, how we end up uh, overcoming our own sinful natures and overcoming the tendencies of the world and even overcoming the devil himself because of the works of Christ. And he brings us into the point where we can understand what it is to walk with God, truly, where we overcome everything. And we still have to walk with God, and that's the point is learning how to commune in a certain way with God where we have Him in our heart. And he contrasts the heavenly nature and our sinful nature and how we can even overcome ourselves where we, God has authority uh, in us. and we, He gives us direction to build Christ's likeness in our lives. Also, I'd like to point out our format as we go through this. You'll notice there's a handout in your bulletin which has sections of Scripture that we're going to talk today about in the, the second chapter of the first epistle of John. And you'll notice that there's lines that are underlined in each of those sec- sections. And what I've done is taken the section and saying, in this section of Scripture, the author is trying to bring out this main point. You'll see the main point also uh, brought out in that note. And the things that are underlined in that section of Scripture are the sections we're going to look at that brings out the main point. This is why it is the main point. And there might be other uh, items in that. It's not going to be an exhaustive understanding of that section of Scripture, but we're going to cover the main point and then go through the Scripture in kind of a rapid uh, pace so that we can understand what the author is trying to bring out. Sometimes I think we... We get looking so much at details, we forget what the, the main point is, right? So let's get started. First, we'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for your love and mercy upon us. And thank you for your provisions. Provisions here in life that we can sustain ourselves physically and materially, that's important, but also provisions spiritually. You have given us Jesus, and we have him in our heart. And, and his Holy Spirit teaches us your word, in, in which it richly indwells within our heart and mind, so that we can be like you. We can overcome things and, and do things that you would have us to do, and it's all because of you and what you've done in your works in our lives. Therefore, we give you glory and praise because of who you are and what you're doing in our lives and hearts. And God, we just pray that, we humbly pray that you have your way in our hearts and minds today. 
Thank you, God, for loving us. And thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Thank you for your mercy upon us and enabling us to walk by your grace through faith. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I always say that if I have something to say, so what? What matters is that God speaks to your heart. You know, that's an important thing. So let's start. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I like the fact that John starts this by saying, my little children. And when he does that, he's speaking of his efforts to bring people along in Christ. You know, He had an effect on these churches, and, and, and as they accepted the Lord and became children of God, he was then their brother, and he understands that they're also his little children. People that have been brought up in the Lord, I think, when they come to know the Lord, we have a responsibility for them. Paul had the same idea in Galatians 4.19. He says, My children, whom I again in labor until Christ is formed in you. You see, we have a, a communion not only with one another, but also people, especially people that we brought in to know the Lord, then we are responsible for them. Our job is to make disciples. We should be shouting from the mountains, right? That's what we should be doing. And when someone does come in to know the Lord, then we have a responsibility. And they're, in effect, our offspring as well. Um, my dad became a Christian at, a, at an older age, like in, ni- in the 90s. I was able to share Christ with him, and he accepted the Lord, my father. And this is awesome. And, and it was neat to see him to get back into God's Word and go to church and start to grow and understand who he was in Christ. And, and he was around almost 90 years old, and he was, he was dying. And the Lord had brought us up to Michigan so that we could meet with him before uh, he went to see his Savior. And lying there in the hospital bed, you know, he said to me, he said, Steve, I'm not really sure what's going to happen, you know? I'm, I'm checking out here. Yeah. And basically, I said, Dad, everything that's going to happen from you from here on out is according to what God is going to do for you. It's an act of His grace that He has forgiven your sins and you'll be received into glory. And the really cool thing is my, my son, my wife, my daughter, and my sister, and we all gathered around His bed and we prayed. And just the peace of the Lord came over that situation and my dad had this peace in his heart about what was going to happen. And, and, and a few days later, he, he, he actually right after we left, he went to sleep and he never woke up. And a few days later, he went to be with the Lord. And I'm so grateful that, that not only I was there to help my dad as the Lord helped him, but also my son was able to see the, his forefathers walking in faith. No, that was so awesome. But, and the point is there is we have a responsibility to those who we bring into the body of Christ that they, they don't end up wandering away. You know, we need each other. We need to build each other up in that respect. 
Also, I think the, the fact that John uses the adjective little expresses our relationship to God. We are little children. You know, we were talking about this this morning in Sunday school class about God and how, how inexpressible he is to us. You know, do we really understand God? Not very well. I mean, how can you understand someone who can create everything just by speaking? You know, that omnipotent part of that, he's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. How can we really get a firm grasp of that? And because of that, the things in the Bible about God is kind of sketchy. We can understand kind of who God is and how great he is. But the one thing we can really come away with is what he wants us to do, how he wants to, to know us and to get to know him. And it's going to take all eternity to understand God. And we still won't understand everything about him. He's an indescribable God. I think these words that we have, like omnipotent, omniscient, and sovereign God, is, is words that certainly express God, but not to their full extent. And we have to understand our limitations in that regard. We are little children in our union with God. And the important point there to come away with is this union with God really identifies us as His children. And just as a reminder, God is a triune God. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when we come into relationship through Jesus Christ, into relationship with God, we have a communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you abide in the Father as well. And Jesus said, I have to go away so I can send the Holy Spirit. We have a, a relationship with God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our first point. Our union with God comes through the Holy Spirit and the works of Christ. In verse 1 it says, We have an advocate with the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. And here it's referring just to Jesus, but I think we both are true. In John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and you will be in Him. It will be in you. The Holy Spirit's job is to teach us and identify us in God's family. In Romans 8.15 it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons in which we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit identifies us as children of God and it promotes the image of Christ to be developed within our heart. And also the Holy Spirit restrains evil in our heart. Our sinful nature has to die so that we can live to Christ. And that is a work of God as well. Speaking of Jesus, in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't it neat 
very cool, that Jesus understands our struggle. He understands that we're in the world. He understands that the devil has control over the world. And he understands that men's human sinful natures will give them motivation to be to draw into the world instead of Christ. Yet God has intervened in our hearts and lives to bring us closer to Him. So we're different. We're in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? We are in Christ. We're of Christ. We're of God. We're moving a different direction. And He knows our weaknesses. In Hebrews 9, 11-14, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes and a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In verse 12 there it says, Through his blood he entered the holy place. Jesus, our great high priest, came to fulfill the covenant which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. That's a covenant that is brought in Christ's own blood, that we can know God. And he enters into that holy place. He is seated at the right hand of God. And if we just receive Christ, then you have access to God. And it is through his blood that he has done this for us. The blood is a representation or is actual, a, a for, brings the forgiveness of sins. Without Jesus' blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And this he's done for us. He did this through the eternal spirit. Christ came and he was directed by the Holy Spirit to do these things. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness that the Holy Spirit directed him to go? And in essence, he's walking kind of like we walk. We walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And he was given direction by the Holy Spirit to do these things. And it cleanses our conscience from dead works. We are dead in our trans- transgressions before God, and he makes us alive. He brings us back into fellowship with him the propitiation of our sins. In Romans 4.25, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus was given over to suffer and die for us, and he was raised from the dead because the sacrifice was sufficient. If there was one sin that wasn't forgiven, then Jesus wouldn't have been raised from the dead. Our justification is complete. And he is the Savior of the world. In 1 John 4.14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
The point is whether people will end up choosing Christ or choosing their own selfish ambitions and live by the flesh. That is the point. We all have that choice to make in life. Hopefully, we will choose Christ. And this brings us into fellowship and also brings us in alignment with God's commandments as well. In 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, By this we know that we come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We are supposed to walk like Jesus walked. And this, this, this sentence in here, it says, the love of God has been truly perfected. Doesn't that make you a little nervous? We're supposed to be perfect? Well, I'm not perfect. And this is talking about being perfect in love. It's not being perfect as far as I, I'm not going to do any sin against God because the Bible tells us clearly that we've all fallen short of God's glory. But here it's saying we should be perfect in love. Just as God loves people, so should we. We should walk as he walked. That's the point. This scripture defines antinomianism and legalism. Antinomianism is the idea that I'm saved by grace and I don't have to do anything. I'm outside of God's moral law because God saved me. I can do whatever I want. That's kind of one extreme. And on the other end of the scale, you have legalism that says, hey, I have to do these things to merit God's favor. Both of them are an error. It's actually a pretty extreme error. I think there, we have a tendency to go to extremes, and you have to identify the middle ground or the biblical position on this. And Luther, Martin Luther had something interesting to say to Pope Leo in this regard. Uh, Martin Luther wrote to Pope Leo, and he said this, Thus ought our works to be done, and not in order to be justified by them. For first, being justified by faith, we ought to do all our works freely and cheerfully for the sake of others. Martin Luther was saying it's not the works that save us. We're, we're saved by faith, by grace through faith. And he said, but our works are an outpouring of God's Spirit inside of us. We love people, therefore we'll do certain things. And he's right. And he was opposing legalism. This isn't about doing works to demonstrate love. The point is we do works because of love, God's love. Love is the originator of the works. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what are Jesus' commandments? I think we have some pretty good examples of what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, He said, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if we love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
There's that word again, perfect. We're supposed to be perfect in love towards others. It's not that we do things to inherit salvation because we are perfect. That would be futile. This is talking about being perfect in love. So why would we want to love our enemies? What's up with that? My enemy's trying to hurt me. Why would I want to love my enemy? Well, it says clearly here that we love our enemies because that's what God does. He loves all people. And He sends the rain on the good and the evil. Oh, and by the way, who were we before Christ intervened in our lives? Were we the friends of God? The Bible clearly says that we are God's enemy before we receive Christ. We're working against Him. We're going the wrong direction. We're of the world and God pulls us out of the world into His church so that we are with Him. So, we ought to love our enemies because maybe they'll become our brothers and sisters, right? You never know. God's working His grace all around us and He's saving people from the world, from the system of corruption that we see around us. He's bringing people into His truth so they can walk by His grace and mercy. Ought we to be merciful as well? In John 15, 16, another parable of the vine and the branches. John 15, verses 6 through 11 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear fruit. And so prove to me my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This comes from the analogy of Jesus being a vine and we are the branches. And he says, says here quite clearly that apart from him, what can we do? Nothing. There's nothing that we can do apart from Christ. It is God's work in our heart that brings us to an understanding of who He is and, and helps us to walk in a way that is loving towards others. It's all the work that God is doing. The whole notion of bearing fruit is because of Christ's work in you. You know, We want to go out into the neighborhood to wash people's cars, I guess, but to demonstrate love and to have the chance to earn the trust of people to share Jesus with them. That's the whole point. The night out thing, same thing. We just want to go out there and have an opportunity to share the good news with people. And this is more to the point that His abiding love in you, which enables you to both do His commands and therefore bear fruit. He commanded us to go out to share the gospel. Basically, that's our great commission. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And that involves our personal lives, our professional lives, uh, everything we do it should be about that. And that's not screaming at people necessarily. That's bringing people and showing them the love of God. Showing them, telling them that God loves them. And he's provided a way to heaven. 
through Christ. That is the message in our heart. Uh, all of it condensed. That is it. Jesus Christ provide a way to heaven through the cross. And he wants to be with us. It's not difficult. In verse 7, he says, Ask for whatever you wish. This is also predicated on the abiding love and presence of Christ in your mind and heart. Then you can have whatever you ask for. This is also brought out in 1 John 5.14. Ask for whatever you want. Well, consider this. We are, I'm a military guy, right? You know, I'm kind of crazy that way. But understand this. When you're under authority and God tells you to do something and you start walking in the direction that He wants you to go, and this is what He's saying. If you ask anything in accordance with your orders, what you're ordered to do, guess what? You're going to get it. So as we go out and we, we start going into the communities, we need to start asking, Right? And we, I think we have a great expectation when we do that because we know we're doing what God wants us to do. We're moving in the direction that God would have us to go. And when you ask with that heart and you're just trying to share the love of Christ with people, guess what? You're going to have what you ask for. Man, that is the greatest news ever. Because all we're trying to do is break through this darkness. And the darkness is way more powerful than what we can do. God knows that. But it's His light that shines into people's hearts and lives. And it's His Word that, that breaks through and teaches us and helps us to grow. Right? It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about Him. Boy, and I'll tell you, we can ask whatever we want in accordance with God's will, and we know we have it. We're moving out in the right direction. We just need to pray. Don't forget to ask. Can I have prayer partners? People volunteering to pray for the night out thing? All right, got one. Anybody else? Two? Praying for the car wash? Please raise your hand. We need, we, there you go. All right. We all need to be praying for that. And I'm not just kidding. I mean, digitally do it because we need it. Because we can't do anything apart from him. God's grace brings love in your heart through Christ. And God's love aligns your will with God's will. And, and I think this next scripture in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, kind of demonstrates what I was talking about this, about this antinomianism, where you're saved by grace and you can do whatever you want. Because most people, as they go through this scripture, will stop at verse 9. They don't read verse 10. And I'll show you what I mean. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10 says, But God, being rich in His mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that anyone should boast. And usually it stops there, doesn't it? And that's a true statement. God brings us into His family, into this covenant relationship with Him, and it's not done by our works, it's done by His works. I can't take credit for it. You can't take credit for it. It's something that Jesus has done in your heart to bring you in alignment with His will. 
to bring you into this covenant relationship, to, to wipe away all of your sins. That's a work of God. That's what He has done. But the Scripture actually has something else to say about that. In verse 10, it continues to say, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has created a new image in your heart and in your mind that brings you in conformity with His will so that when you go out and you comply yourself in the direction He wants you to go, you can have what you ask for because He has created you for good works that He has prepared before the creation of the universe. This is in the mind of God to, to create you for good works. We're not saved by those works, but God definitely has a direction that He wants us to go. God has created you for good works because of His grace and love in your heart. Beloved, you are special because of Christ in you and His love in your heart. Which brings us to our third point about following God's will. And he says it's a new commandment because in Christ we can actually keep it now. In 1 John 2, 7-11, through 11, the writer says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So it's kind of interesting the way this is worded. He says it's an old commandment and it's a new commandment all at the same time. Well, if you look back, the old commandment is in Deuteronomy 6, 5, uh, chapter 10, verse 12, chapter 11, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 3, and chapter 30, verse 6. That's the old commandment. Now, since he put it in there five times, do you think God was trying to make a point? Yes, he certainly was trying to make a point. This is what I want you to do. Now, Jesus reiterates this old commandment. And interesting enough, in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, he does this when trying to be trapped by a Pharisee into creating something, a fault that they can catch him on. And this Pharisee asked Jesus this. He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And this is the greatest and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophet. So basically, Jesus is saying the commandment is to love. That is the great commandment, that we love each other. In 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11 John brings God's love home to us in its most basic and understandable level, which is brotherly love. The idea of uh, abiding in God's love is a source of brotherly love. John, 1 John 2, uh, verse 10 says, abiding in the light. This is about abiding in the love of Christ. And if we have that kind of love, how can we not love each other in that way? 
There's other examples too in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 24. Jesus said, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be held liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Be serious. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering to God. The point here, I think, is pretty straightforward. God is serious how we treat each other. We are required to have the same attitude of love toward each other that God has toward us. There's another parable that brings out this point, the parable of the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18, 32-35. Now this slave owed the king 10,000 talents. Well, what in the world's a talent? A talent is 15 years' wage. So he owed him 10,000 talents. That's 150,000 years of wages. The point there is that there's no way that he's going to be able to pay his lord back, the king back. And this same slave, and so he pleads to the king, please forgive me, right? And he forgave him the debt. Sounds familiar? That's what God has done for us. He has forgiven a debt that there's no way that we could ever pay back. And that same slave went out and found another slave who owned him 100 denarii. 100 denarii is like three months of wage, a little bit more than that. A denarius was one day's wage. And he finds this guy who owes him three months of pay, and basically says, I want this money back. Now! And he, the guy couldn't pay him, so he turns him over to be punished. Well, what do you think happened when the king heard about what happened? Right? This is what happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had the mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus said this. He said, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You think the Lord is serious about this? I would say so. He is very serious about it. In 1 John 2.9 again, he says, But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The point being is we should have mercy on each other because God is merciful towards us. If someone bugs you, get over it. Maybe they're more spiritual than you are or maybe you're more spiritual than they are. You know, and a lot of times it's a matter of conscience. You know, we have different levels of maturity or knowledge, perhaps, of the Word of God or maybe sin. In either case, we should be our intention to restore a person to Christ. You know, and I think sometimes people need to be held accountable. But even that is an effort to restore them. I was, I was an instructor pilot for quite a few years flying helicopters. 
And we had problems with this one guy. You know, there's certain objectives we want a person to reach, and he just was not able to achieve the standards. And I'm out there flying with this guy, and I look over at him, and he's looking at the switch on top of the cyclic, and he's fixating on the switch. And the switch kind of moves the cyclic back and forth, and he's totally oblivious to everything else that's going on around him. So he's sitting there goofing around with it, and obviously he hasn't paid attention because he hasn't responded to anything that we've, we've taught him through the months of training. So I said, well, I'm just going to let this guy go with it and see what happens. So he's flying this helicopter, and he's just looking at this switch, you know, and everything's going by outside. He's just fixating. I'm like, man, I can't believe he's doing that. And he lines up on the runway, kind of, sort of, and he's going way long. I wish Bill was here because he had no <laughs> You can go long on a runway in an airplane, you're in trouble. A helicopter, you got plan B. You can usually hover the thing. But we were doing single engine work where you shut off an engine and you got to land like an airplane, you know. So this guy's he's barreling in on the runway. He's going pretty fast, and we're going to touch down like an airplane. And he's only got like 200 foot of runway left. You know, that's like from here to the end of the lot. And there's no way he's going to stop in time. I just let him go with it. And he's sitting there barreling down there, and he looks over me, and he's got this fear of just look of fear in his eyes. And I just look at him and say, "Well, what you going to do now, cowboy?" You know, I, I thought that was hilarious because. You know, he, he was out of ideas. He was totally done. And I said, all right, I have controls. And I picked up the helicopter and stopped it and then hovered back over the runway and sat down. We talked about it. Why did all these things happen? Because you were fixated on one little thing. you got to get in line with everything else that's going on around you. And, but my point was is I had to let the guy fail. And to get a little afraid, I know I'm afraid of everything, but to bring his attention to the point, hey, you need help. You know, and sometimes God does that in our lives too. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? When did that guy realize that he needed help? When he was running away from his father? No. When he was in the pig slot. When he was down in the pig slot. He finally realized, you know, I need some help here. This is not going as I had planned. I thought this grandiose plan would just be fun and adventure. And here I am in the pig trough. There is nothing lower for a Jewish person to be in the pig slop. Put that in context. You know, and I think pig slop is a pretty good analogy of our sin. And sometimes we choose to operate by our sinful nature and then the Spirit of God. And guess where we end up? In the pig slop. And that's where we realize, hey, I need some help. And we're all in the same boat. And it's not like God doesn't know where we are. He knows us. He knows that we have a tendency to do evil. We do. And if we ignore that, you're going to be like that guy looking at that button on that cyclic and running, on, and running out of runway. Right? Realize who God is and that He wants to come and help us and walk with us. And through His Word and understanding, uh, how He wants us to grow. It brings us to our last point. We stand by the abiding love of Christ and truth. In 1 John 2, 12-14, John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
And I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. It is interesting that that John repeats each of these exhortations to children, young men, and fathers, which shows a growth. And he also says, I am writing and I have written, which shows I've given you this message and you received it. In this, John basically states three things. He says, your sins have been forgiven. You know him and you have overcome the evil one. Your sins have been forgiven in verse 12. It brings us back to 1 John 2, 1, where he himself is an advocate with the Father, Jesus. We don't face God alone, and he's the propitiation for our sins. He has essentially killed our sin. He has judged our sin at the cross. We don't have to be mastered by it anymore. He has given us provision that we can overcome. And in return for giving up our sin, we inherit His righteousness. That's kind of out of the ballpark there, that we should be considered the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But it's necessary because God's a holy God and He can't look on sin at all. In verses 13 and 14, it says, You know God. This is an act of the covenant in Christ. This is brought out in Hebrews 8.11 and Jeremiah 31.31-34. And it's about abiding with God. You know, the word abiding is carried all throughout the New Testament. Uh, It is about our relationship with God. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one, in verse 14. I think this is a reminder that doctrine is important. What we believe, the truth of the Scriptures, is very important, and it's important that we study it. I love Mickey's class, because we go in there and we're studying doctrine, the truths of Scripture. This is why we believe what we believe, because this is what the Scripture says. And the Scripture reinforces itself, because it comes from God and is written by a lot of different authors, and they all bring us to the same point that we need Christ. We are strong because of God's abiding presence, which comes from His Word abiding in us, and the fellowship of His Spirit, and also the fellowship of the saints. When we come together, we're doing what God has told us to do, and therefore we are stronger because of it. And this is what we do to create disciples of Christ. We bring people in to the 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 family of God, and then we experience sanctification and then good works. In closing, Ephesians 4, 14 through 15, says, as a result, we no longer, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we all grow up in an aspect into him who is the head, even Christ. And this is our goal, that we have Jesus in our hearts shining and we know the truths of Scripture. We know that we are saved because of what Christ has done for us. And we can share that gospel with with other people. 
If you have never made a commitment to Christ in that respect and you want to know Him in covenant relationship, all it takes is a simple prayer. And if you'd like to pray with someone, uh, we'll be here at the end of service. You can come up. And also, if in sanctification, if there's areas that you need help with, well, guess what? We all need help. Come forward and we'll pray for those areas. Uh, and also for work. So we're going out in the community and we better be praying because the evil one doesn't want us to go out and spread the light of Jesus around. And we better be praying for that as well. So at the end of the service, I suggest if you'd like to come forward and pray, we can pray about whatever you think the needs are. Okay? Okay.